As I said earlier, we are wrapping up the book of Mark this morning. Um, If you want to turn there, we'll be in Mark chapter 14. It's page 905 um, in the Bible that you have in front of you um, in the pew, or you can follow along in our app. The scripture is there. Um, But last week, we saw the death of Jesus and all the implications of his death, right? That his death was in our place. That his de- he was taking on our sins on the cross, and he was suffering the wrath and separation from God for sin. That the curtain was torn, the curtain of his flesh, and the actual curtain in the temple, symbolizing that we have direct access to God. And we talked about how Jesus' death was the most crucial moment in history, because so much happened in those few hours. And while his death on the cross is the most crucial um, it's only crucial because of what we see today, right? If today doesn't happen, and this, I don't think this is a spoiler anymore, um, Jesus comes back to life. Um, and so if that doesn't happen, what he does on the cross actually has very little meaning. Um, and Paul himself talks about this later in 1 Corinthians 15. He has a series of verses and kind of sums them up like this. He says, if Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is worthless, The message of the gospel is pointless, and we should be pitied above all people, right? If the resurrection doesn't happen, that's how we should feel about being Christians. So without the resurrection to confirm that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, that he would rise from the dead, then he was, basically, he was just a crazy person claiming to be the Son of God um, with some strange powers and coincidences along the way. But the resurrection confirms that he is who he said he was because all of the things he said would happen come true through the resurrection. And so if Christ is raised, then everyone can be raised. Everyone can be saved through Christ. And so the journey of discipleship continues. And that's what we're talking about in the book of Mark from the very beginning all the way through the end is the journey of discipleship, of how following Jesus goes from generation to generation and it continues on even today. And that's what we're looking at this morning is how the resurrection keeps the journey going and what it takes to continue on the journey of discipleship. And so we're going to read together um, Mark Uh, 15, starting in verse 40, and we're going to read through 16, um, 8. And it says this, There were also women watching from a distance. This is just after Jesus dies. He says, Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and of Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him, and many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who himself was looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. And when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and they laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. Now when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? 
And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there just as he told you. And they went out and ran from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone, since they were afraid. So we're going to look at kind of how the journey of discipleship continues and how it does. So first, the journey of discipleship requires faith, right? This isn't a revolutionary idea, but we're going to look at this. And so first, we're actually going to look at some of the evidence that we see in Scripture, in Mark, um, for Jesus' death and resurrection, um, and kind of start there. Because yes, even though there is a lot of evidence, um, it still does take faith to believe. But first, we see um, one of the more crucial things that Mark does here is he uses the women as witnesses. Um, and so you see them in verse 40, right, watching from a dis- distance the crucifixion and his death. Then you see him at his burial in verse 47, um, witnesses that he was actually dead. And then you see them in verse 1 at the empty tomb. They are witnesses to the resurrection. So Mark very clearly places these women, he's not making it up, we're going to get to that in a second, um, that in each of these things, so they saw the whole thing, right? Crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, they saw all of it. Now, in today's culture, um, if you pulled the soundbite out and just posted it on the internet, I would get in a lot of trouble. Um, so please don't do that. But this, I'm just telling you what it was like then. Um, if Mark was making this up, there is no way that he would use women as witnesses. Um, it just wouldn't happen. Um, there's another writer in the first century who was an opponent of Christianity. And he wrote, basically, why would he use women as witnesses? Doesn't everyone know that women are hysterical? Right? They're crazy. You can't believe anything they say. Right? That's what he said. Like, you would never use women is this, because in this time, women could actually not be witnesses in a courtroom. So if you're a woman and you witnessed a crime, you could not testify in court. Your testimony was not valid at this time. So we've come a long way since then, and that's a good thing, right? And so no one reading this would believe it, and Mark wouldn't put this in unless it was true, right? The only reason to put these women in here is because that's what actually happened, right? You wouldn't make this up, and you wouldn't use, this in this, use women in this way at this time. There's also similar evidence to this, um, and it it concerns the disciples. If you notice, um, there's no disciples to be found anywhere. Not at the crucifixion, not at the burial, not at the resurrection, at least not yet. And so we've watched all along in the book of Mark, and the disciples are basically being set up to be the heroes, right? That Jesus would pass the baton to them and they would do all of these great things. We have the benefit of being in the future, so we know that they did do some great things. But in this moment, the heroes are nowhere to be found. And so if you're writing a story, it would be really good to like have the heroes show up and act like heroes at the end, right? Not to just disappear and not be there, right? Unless they weren't actually there, which fits with some of the other things we know about the disciples on the way. And so 
they need to act like heroes. And so Mark also wants us to know all the way through that Jesus was really dead, right? We have the confession by the centurion that we saw last week, that when he breathed his last, he said, this man was the son of God. This is a guy whose job was to make sure that people were dead. That was his job. He made sure that whoever went through this punishment actually died. And then we have Joseph who comes and he asks to bury him. And this was confirmed by Pilate and a centurion who said, yes, he's really dead. And so Pilate says, okay. And then when they give him Jesus' body, um, Mark is very careful, I think, not to just say, and they gave him Jesus' body. The, the actual word they use, if you saw that, is corpse, right? They gave him a corpse, a dead body. His body was dead. He was dead. Not just fainted, not sleeping deeply, not in a coma. He was dead, right? And also, along with this, there's no real rebuttals of the resurrection early on, right? Remember the Jews who were out to get Jesus for so, like, since chapter 3 of Mark and we're in chapter 15, they were out to get Jesus and to kill him. If there's no resurrection, I would think those same Jews would be like, no, 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 this didn't happen. You guys are just making this up. We don't see anything from Jews in the early writings, and so I think this is a good bit of evidence that Jesus did actually die and that he did actually come back from the dead. Um, there are other reasons. I'm not going to go into all of those today, but if you're interested in those, just let me know and we can have a conversation about them. Um, and this is a good bit of evidence, but it's actually not really 100%, right? You wouldn't just say this and say, I'm convinced 100% that this actually happened. And so at some level, you still have to believe you still have to have faith that it's true. And I think the further we get in time from the resurrection, the harder it becomes to believe and the more faith it takes. And you may think, well, I think it's really probably impossible for Jesus to rise from the dead. That kind of stuff just doesn't really happen. And it may seem that way. And I think what we talked about earlier is actually an example of this. Um, there's no disciples at the tomb. Right? They had been told. They had to be told later by other people. But Jesus all along told them at least three times, very specifically, I will be arrested, I will be killed, I will rise again on the third day. But on the third day, there's no disciples anywhere. And so if you're doubting, if you're skeptical of the resurrection, you're kind of in good company because the disciples were in the same place that you are. They were also skeptical. The resurrection also seemed impossible to them. However, these same men who weren't really convinced and had to be told later and had to go see it and had to see Jesus in person, right, that he was really alive, became the ones who spread the word of Jesus' death and resurrection. They endured arrests, they endured beatings, they endured persecutions, and most of them gave their lives for this truth, that Christ came back from the dead. So even though they began as skeptics, they became convinced, and all of them went on to boldly proclaim the resurrection. And as I was doing my research um, this week, I ran across a guy who was talking about kind of the significance of the resurrection, and I don't think that we can underplay this um, and how significant it is to believe in it. He was talking about um, a friend he was talking to who was an atheist. 
um, or at, le- at the very least, an agnostic. And he said, um, what I did was I asked him, like, what's the bottom line when it comes to Christianity? And he responded, that's easy. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Then he added, if the resurrection is true, then so are a number of other things. There is a God. Jesus is that God. The Bible is true. Heaven and hell are real. And Jesus makes the difference whether you go to one or the other. Right? It's not just Christians who understand the significance of the resurrection. Other people who oppose or don't believe know that if the resurrection is true, then probably so is everything else that the Bible talks about. Right? It is a significant event that we have to believe. It requires faith to believe it. But it confirms who Jesus was. It makes the events that happened on the cross the most crucial moment that Christ does in the history of the world. And so we have to have faith to continue on the journey. But the journey of discipleship also requires courage. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's also important to be reminded that it does take courage to follow Jesus. And we see this in the actions of Joseph. In verse 42 um, and 43, it says, When it was already evening, because it was a day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So if you're not familiar with this, just know sundown on Friday to sun up, sundown on Saturday was the Sabbath for the Jews, and they could not do anything. No eating, no cooking, nothing like that. And so if Jesus' body stays on the cross after sundown, he stays there until the next end of the next day. So they need to get his body down and get him buried before sundown on Friday. And so that's why he went. And so Joseph, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, there's a few things that we can see here that help us understand that Joseph actually had to be pretty courageous to do what he did. One is, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, if you remember just a couple of chapters ago, um, the Sanhedrin is the group of people who sentenced Jesus for blasphemy to death and delivered him to Pilate to be crucified. This is a group of people who were chanting, crucify him. And Joseph is a member of this group. And so Joseph was risking the backlash that would come when he basically outs himself as a follower of Jesus in this moment with all of his colleagues kind of knowing this is what he is doing, right? His loyalty would be revealed. In doing this, his secret belief, his allegiance to Jesus would be revealed, but he knew it was worth it to deal with the reactions and the hostility of his friends and his co-workers. Right? Because following Jesus is not a secret endeavor. If you live your life as a Christian and nobody around you actually knows that you're a Christian, not that you go to church, but that you're actually a Christian and it affects the way that you live your life, then you might want to reevaluate how you're living as a Christian. Right? At some point, we need to take a stand and we need to, what I'm going to say, I know this language is co-opted by tons of people, we need to come out to our friends and co-workers as believers in Christ. Right? But we do that in a loving way, in a gracious way. Right? Not in a harsh, judgmental way, which is the way we're often portrayed in the media and other places. Right? Not because we're complaining or arguing or protesting or we're angry about where society is headed because we are loving, we're welcoming, and we're accepting. Right? It's basically being like Jesus. Because we saw all throughout the book of Mark, the problem they had with Jesus is he was too welcoming. He was too accepting. 
He was hanging out with people that he wasn't supposed to be hanging out with. Right? And they couldn't understand why he was doing that. Right? And, so when it, and when it came down to it, Jesus did say, hey, there is sin and it needs to be dealt with. Right? He wasn't just saying you can do whatever you want or you can live however you want. But he had compassion and forgiveness and love for anyone who came to him seeking help. Right? And we do this, we are this way, we treat people this way we, because we understand that we are all sinners in need of grace. Right? Not just the people who aren't here this morning, right? even the people who are here. We're all sinners. We're all broken. We all need Jesus. We aren't any better than anybody else. We've just been given the gift of faith in Christ. Right? That's it. And so... It, going to Pilate was courageous because he was basically outing himself as a follower of Jesus and all the backlash. But going to Pilate was also risky because Jesus was actually convicted of treason against Caesar, which is a big deal, and you punish it quickly. Um, the problem is, if you're going to ask for the body of somebody who was convicted of treason, there's going to be an assumption that you are friends with someone who committed treason, which very quickly leads to, oh, you're a co-conspirator in this treason, so we'll just arrest you here, and then we'll crucify you tomorrow, right? And so it was risky for Joseph to say, can I bury Jesus? Because he was essentially associating himself with someone who committed treason and taking his life kind of in his hands saying, can I do this? And so it was a little bit risky, so he's making a big ask when he goes to ask for his body. And I think that's some of what we need to do too, right? We need to make a big ask. That's a courageous thing to do as Christians. What do, we, what do we ask for, right? For some of us, just asking someone how I can pray for you is a big ask, right? That's a step further than we normally go in our everyday conversation. Or saying, how can I help you or how can I serve you? Or asking somebody maybe you've been talking to who's a coworker or a friend and you're kind of trying to figure out how, where they are on Jesus and you just ask them, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Or asking God, right, what do you want me to do next? Right, for some of us, that's a big ask because we're giving up control of our lives and our plans and all of those things just to say, God, just tell me what you want me to do next. So those are things that it does, and it takes courage to ask those things, and even more courage, I think, to actually respond to what the answers are to any of those, and to actually do what it says. And so they take him, and they courageously ask for his body, and then they take it, and they wrap him, and they put him in the tomb. And I'm sure in this moment, they were sad. They were dejected because their friend their Savior, the one they thought was the Messiah, was dead. And that was the end. And they put him in, not knowing what would happen next. But what we see next is that this journey of discipleship requires a response. Right? You have to respond to what is here. And that's what we see next. Right? Starting in verse 1 of chapter 16, the women go to anoint the body early in the morning um, just so you know, this is a typical practice for Jews. They didn't embalm the bodies, and so they're taking spices and things that smell good basically to mask the smell of a dead body. That's what they're going to do. Um, just for fun, we'll throw this one in. There's a theory that the women went to the wrong tomb, um, and that's why they didn't find Jesus' body there. 
um, which I guess you could go there, um, but they were just there like a day and a half before, so I doubt that they forgot in a day and a half what tomb Jesus was in. Um, not to mention, that means that everybody else who they told also went to the wrong tomb, right? Everybody who went to check to see if they were right, they also went to the wrong one, and nobody was like, hey, didn't we bury Jesus in the one over there? Like, nobody said that. I just, that one's hard for me to believe that they went to the wrong tomb. I'm not even sure why that one's still out there, but some people are still throwing it out. But while on their way, they wondered how they would get in um, because the stone was huge. And so um, if you think about this, how they did it, basically there's a huge stone and there's a groove kind of cut in the ground. And so to get it into the groove is easy because you just got to get it rolling and then it just kind of rolls in, right? But once to get it out, you got to push it uphill out of the groove, which we all know is harder than getting it in. We've all been there. We're like, oh, this went in really easy. It'll be really easy to get out, and it just doesn't come out, right? That's sort of what's happening with the stone. So they're saying, how are we going to get in? It's going to be much more difficult. And then they get there. The stone is gone. There's a young man in a white robe implying that he is an angel. This is confirmed in some of the other Gospels, is there. And he says, like most angels do that we see in the Gospels or in Scripture, don't be afraid, right? Because when you see one, every, they almost say the same thing every time. Don't be afraid. He has risen. And this is, like, this is typical Mark right here. Remember last week when we looked at the crucifixion, and it was like four words for the crucifixion, right? And he was crucified. It's, we get three words for the resurrection, right? He has risen. So Mark just, in all of this stuff, he just says, hey, this, he's risen. It's simple. Um, and so he does this in those same words. But if, in some of your translations, it may say, he has been raised. And so that's an important thing to understand, I think, just in the concept of the resurrection, because it's implying that God raised him from the dead, that it wasn't just Jesus who did this, but that God raised him. He has been raised by God. And so we see this confirmed in a couple of places, Romans 8, um, 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then in 1 Peter 1, um, 21, it says, Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Right? God raises Jesus from the dead. And I think this is important to understand that God has the power to raise people from the dead through Christ's defeat of sin and death. So God can also raise you from the dead because he raised Christ. So then he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Now notice here, he singles out Peter, right? There's 11 disciples and they're all covered when you say disciples. But he says, tell the disciples and Peter. So why do you think that is? I think one of the reasons is, if you remember back to when Jesus was on trial, um, Peter fails pretty spectacularly, right? He's warned that he will deny Jesus three times, and when the moment comes, he denies Jesus three times, and he knows. Um, and so in Mark, there's no mention of Peter until this point in between those two things. And so I think 
what Mark is doing here is he wants to make it really clear that, P- that Peter's failure in denying Jesus was not the end of his ministry. It was not the end of following Jesus. It was not a disqualifying event. Right? His failure didn't disqualify him from participating in the continuance of the mission of Jesus. And so the mention of Peter is a reminder that failure is not a dead end for followers in Christ. There would be forgiveness for Peter. There would be restoration for Peter. Right? And so there is hope for those who have failed in their discipleship. We can still have hope. We can still have confidence because of this example of Peter. Our failures are not disqualifying. We can still be got used by God if we repent and are restored. And so then we get to verse 8. And we're going to look at this one for a minute because there's a lot of stuff happening here, not in verse 8 in particular. But this is verse 8. And they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now, in your Bible, after verse 8, most of you probably have like a line or a series of dashes. And then it says something like, some of the earliest MSS, which is short for manuscripts, conclude with 16.8. And so what they're saying is, um, the earliest manuscripts that have been found for the book of Mark end at verse 8. And so everything after that was most likely added later. So many scholars agree that in the verses after that, the language and the way it's written does not sound like the rest of Mark. Also, just so you know this, almost all of the material that is in those verses is actually found somewhere else in Scripture and in the other Gospels. Now, when you read this, there is a verse that sounds a little bit funny in the midst of all of that. There's one about like handling snakes and drinking poison, and you're just like, oh, what's that all about? Does that mean we should have like snakes up here next week and all of that? Um, no. Um, one, because this wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, but also um, I can at least explain the snake one because if you read on into Acts and you find Paul on his missionary journeys, this actually happens to him where he gets bitten by a snake out of a pile of wood and everybody's like, he's going he's like, he's to die. He's going to drop over dead. And he doesn't, Right? He is saved by God through that. And so at least that one, which kind of gives some credence to being added later because they know this about Paul. And so it doesn't mean we should be doing that, but that God can protect you from those things if he chooses. Um, That's not really necessary for today, but I thought I'd throw that in in case you read it later and you're like, why aren't we handling snakes up here? Um, One, I don't like snakes. That's one reason. I can do a lot of things, but snakes are not one of them. Okay, so... Then we have this question, well, why would they do that? Why would they add on to the end of the book of Mark? What's going on here? And so let's read the last verse again and really listen to it. This is the end of the story if Mark ends in verse 8. The women went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now, I think we would all agree this isn't the best ending that was ever written, right? I don't think any of us would probably end this story about Jesus and dying and the resurrection this way, right? 
They're supposed to go tell everybody. They're overwhelmed. They're afraid, and they tell no one. The end. Right? This is not the happy ending that we're used to. It's not the happy ending that we want. It's not very inspiring, which I think is why people would come back later and say, we've got to add some more to this because we need a better ending than what Mark left us with. But I actually like the way that Mark ended it. And I think that's his real ending. And this is why. Because we've been talking about this from the beginning, right? Mark as the journey of discipleship. That it's a process. And it continues from generation to generation to generation to generation. And I think what Mark is doing here is he's saying, now it's up to you. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Right? He leaves it in your hands. You have seen. You have heard. The choice is still yours. How will you respond? Right? Will you respond like these women? Will you be afraid? Will you be silent? Will you be overwhelmed? Or will you go and tell? Right? Will you believe? Will you believe in Jesus' death for you? That he died on the cross for your sins so that you could have life, so that you could be saved? Do you believe in the resurrection that confirms that Jesus' claims to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world are true? Will you trust that God can restore you? Right? Do you feel like you failed? Do you feel like you've let God down? Are you stuck in a spiritual rut and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to get out of it? Do you believe that God can restore you? That he can strengthen you? That he can get you back on track? Right? Just like Peter who failed dramatically. But he's restored and used mightily by God. Do you believe he can do the same with you, no matter what you've done or how big you failed in your life? Do you believe in grace? That there's grace for you in your mistakes and your sins because of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection? Right? Will you go and tell? Will you respond with faith and action as a result of these truths or fear and unbelief? Right? Because this is Mark's whole point from the beginning of the book. From John the Baptist to Jesus to the disciples to us. Right? We must respond. We must follow. We must continue on the journey of discipleship so that God's name will be known and glorified in all the nations. And so I think what Mark is doing is he's leaving it like this on purpose. And he's saying, this is how the women responded. They were afraid. They were scared. They didn't know what to do. And so at least at the beginning, they didn't tell anybody. Right? So will that be your response? Will you be afraid and overwhelmed and fearful and not tell anybody? Or will you do what we've been called to do, to go and tell?
to follow Christ, to take up your cross, to deny yourself, to follow him wherever he leads you, wherever it takes you, wherever it goes, whatever the consequences, whatever people say about you, whatever it changes in your life, whatever you have to give up, whatever you have to sacrifice, all of those things are worth it for following him. There's nothing greater than wholeheartedly following Jesus. The problem for us is we're really not good at it, right? It's really hard to wholeheartedly follow him all the time. It's scary because we don't know what it's going to bring and we don't know how we should respond and we don't know what to do sometimes. But as we trust in him and give our lives over to him, it's going to be better than anything else that we could ever do on our own. And so this journey of discipleship, this journey of following Jesus is better than anything else. And I know most of us in this room, we know that intellectually, but do we actually believe that so that it affects the way that we live our lives, that it affects the way that we talk to people, that we interact with our spouses, our coworkers, our friends, our families, so that they can see that we follow Jesus. We serve him above all things. That's what Mark's question is to you. Will you follow? Will you go and tell? Will you keep the message going? Will you keep the cycle of discipleship moving forward? You guys pray with me this morning. God, we come before you and we thank you for the resurrection that changes everything. Right? It confirms who you are. It reveals your great power. It gives us hope that we too can be saved from the power and the penalty of sin, that we can have life, that we can be resurrected, that we can live with you for all eternity. And so I, God, my hope is that this morning that we would all just leave here and we would ask just the question that I think Mark wants us to ask at the end of his book. How will you respond? How does God want me to respond to this? What does he want me to believe? What does he want me to change? What does he want me to sacrifice? What great things is he calling me to do? Is he asking me to do? And that we would have courage to, to ask some of those questions that we're sometimes afraid to ask. Even if it's just, how can I pray for you? Or how can I serve you? Or what do you think about Jesus? Or asking you yourself, right? What do you want me to do? How can I follow you? How can I trust in you more? How can I serve you? Where are you leading me? And then to be obedient, whatever that is. God, because you have placed us all here in this place, in this part of Austin specifically, to be a light, to pass the message along of hope and salvation to those around us, to those we interact with on a daily basis. So God, help us to be courageous, to be bold enough to serve you wholeheartedly so that we will go and tell, so that we can be disciples who make disciples because that's basically what all this is about. Everything that we do is about making disciples who make disciples. So help us to find our place, to find our part in the mission and to serve you and to follow you wherever it leads because it's greater than anything that we could ever get on our own. God, help us to seek you above all things. In your name I pray, amen.